Welcome to Dear Live, a podcast that seeks to inspire global voices of change, teach you how to live with intention, and expand on the eight dimensions of wellness. I'm your host, Jeanette Schneider. Every week, I'm going to drive conversations from self-development to generational social change, even to financial wellness. I am here to share my stories and reflections alongside therapists, psychologists, coaches, and wellness experts to help you create a healthier you today so we build a healthier world tomorrow. Open up to possibility for yourself, society, and the world. And think of me as the best friend you didn't know you needed with the comfy couch and the brainy stats. Let's get started. Before we get into our guest for today, I wanted to share, I have this money metrics course and you need it. So everyone knows I'm all about financial wellness. And one of the things that I get the most um, questions about is basically how to like shift from debt and poor spending habits to get into that abundant, beautiful, I am <laughs> I am a financial beast type of mindset. So I created this mini course on debt, how to get out of it, how to use credit constructively, and to grow your net worth. Yes, you should be tracking your net worth from your 20s. Not only do we talk about spending, saving, and everything in between, but I created the downloads you need in order to get your money right. So sign up through the link in the show notes. Code is LivePod, my little gift to you. I'm so excited to have Dr. Sarah Shevitz on the podcast once again. If you missed the first episode with her, you'll definitely want to go back and give that a listen. She is a clinical psychologist in LA and the founder of Couples Learn. She's been working with couples and individuals since 2008 and has advanced training in the areas of attraction, attachment, conflict management, communication, rebuilding trust after infidelity, and relationship satisfaction. I had to have her back on the podcast because I wanted to dig deeper into the conversation about rebuilding trust after infidelity. I feel like this conversation in this podcast more specifically is going to really help a lot of people. Uh, Rebuilding trust after infidelity, not only is it incredibly important in order for uh, a relationship to be successful, but it's also a little bit of a, a scary subject. And we get into that as well, how you may not have support from the people around you if you decide that you want to give it one more chance. So please join us in this incredible conversation and don't forget to follow Dr. Sarah at Couples Learn. Let's dive in. Hi, and welcome back to Dear Live. I'm your host, Jeanette Schneider, and I'm here with Dr. Sarah Shevitz. Thank you for joining me yet again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Of course, and big congratulations. I just saw uh, the post. uh, You guys were ranked one of the top online couples counseling services by Forbes. That's a huge honor. Yeah, that was so exciting and unexpected. (laughs) Isn't it nice when the things like that happen? Like all of a sudden you get like a note from someone that's seen something and they're like, hey, I just saw X. And you're like, I was? Yeah, I have a Google alert set up for my name and for the business name. And I had gotten it like a couple of weeks before and hadn't looked at it. And then I'm like, looked at it and I'm like, Forbes, no, this can't be right. This has got to be spam. I yeah. it. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. It's so nice. I was, um, when my book came out, I had gotten it like recognized as like one of the top something, something books about self-development that was like, was like real talk is the way they kind of presented it. Like here's some real talk books or whatever. And um, I didn't know until someone congratulated me on social media and posted it. And I was like, wait, what? Oh, what a fun way to find out. (laughs) Right? And they're like, congratulations. This is so amazing. And I was like, I had no clue. So it's cool when your, your, your kind of name enters the ethers. And, you know, I was so happy for you guys because, you know, I'm a fan of what you're doing and love talking to you. Um, and today we have a supercharged topic. 
um, because, you know, I play in the social media realms and get to see so many posts back and forth on this topic. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to someone who actually lives in the gray. You know, so many times we see that infidelity is a black or white issue. And there's so much judgment either way um, from friends, family, from community, what have you. And there's like these throwaway phrases we use, like once a cheater, always a cheater, or, you know, you better leave him, or, you know, all these different things. And I say him because I think statistically it's more men, but women cheat just like, they're pretty close. Like we're pretty we're close catching up. up. We're catching yeah, okay. up. Okay. I was like, I feel like we're not too far off. Yeah. And so I'm curious from your perspective, um, when it comes to infidelity, and we'll, we'll dig into a lot more, um, I know that there is a perception on what actually is considered cheating, right? And it depends on each people, each person in their individual kind of viewpoint. What do you, like, do, is there a prescriptive or is it by couple? No, it's truly by couple because some people have open relationships where they're allowed to have sex with other people and that's not cheating. Whereas some people think texting a person of the opposite sex if you're heterosexual or maybe you have the same you know it gets even more confusing when you're not heterosexual like then what what are same-sex friendships like so there's just so many different things that could be considered cheating based on the individual um there's no prescriptive in my eyes what do you tell couples like do you think it's important for them to have like a what do you define as cheating conversation in the beginning of the relationship I think that would be really smart yeah because some people consider watching porn cheating or using interactive porn where you're webcam chatting with someone. Others don't. So I think it's it's hard really in this day and age to even think of all the circumstances that might come up that one might consider cheating and the other might not. Um, but if you can have that conversation to the best of your ability, that would be helpful. Yeah. Communication is so incredibly valuable. I think one of the things I've noticed, especially with women that I know that have dealt with infidelity in their relationships, is that it's almost like glittery eyes, we're in love, you know, and, and they don't have those conversations and then they find something and it, it breaks their heart. Or conversely, you have a person who's been cheated on before, so they're constantly like suspicious of every little behavior or, or change. And so I think that begets the question, like, is it true once a cheater, always a cheater? Um, and... And how do you look at those those people who come to relationships with their guard up? Can is that is that you know something that we can debunk, or does it require lots of therapy and, and work? I definitely do not believe the once a cheater, always a cheater. Um, I've seen countless situations where somebody cheated once, um, regretted it, healed, you know continued on with a healthy relationship after that and did not cheat again. So definitely not. That's that absolute is too general. Um, there are instances I think where somebody's cheating repeatedly, where you definitely need to look at like, is this person going to continue doing this, but he or she, or they could also go to rehab if they have a sex addiction, which a lot of times when it's repeated like that, you're probably looking at some sort of um, addictive quality. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, or maybe a personality disorder where they don't have any empathy or are just manipulating. So there, there's a number of reasons why that might happen. And even in those instances, if someone gets treatment, they may not be a cheater in the future. 
Got it. Do you feel that cheating is a sign of unhealed trauma or wounds? Or is it just a, like a, I like girls. <laughs> like, is, there, is there like a, a kind of, can you look at someone and say, oh, if you understand this about yourself, um, I don't know. Like, and I, I think you mentioned kind of like you, you might have the narcissist who has no empathy and it's just a sport maybe, right? Yeah. But then you have the individual who, is it typically because they're seeking something that maybe they didn't have from before, some type of affection, some type of love. Um, do you find that there's typically like some kind of past something that they have to work through to understand the reason why they do it? I'd say very often that's the case, but again, like the absolutes are just impossible with humans because we're so different. So not always. Um, one thing that's really hard for people to understand sometimes is that men in particular can cheat in a happy relationship where they don't feel like they're missing anything or need anything different. Um, I wouldn't say that's the majority of the cases, but mm -hmm. it does happen. And there's not necessarily a deeper underlying trauma or something wrong with the relationship it might be a cultural belief um you know in some cultures cheating is not really a big deal like it's right. still taboo and you don't want to get caught but if you do it's kind of like eh, you know we cheat this is what we do in this culture right so that it could just be a cultural thing and there's nothing <laughs> wrong necessarily they're just doing what is culturally appropriate and I'm sure some of it could also be biological, right? And the only reason I say this is this is a guess. I had um, I took some hormone replacement therapy at one point in time, and they gave me a bunch of testosterone. And all of a sudden, I was totally objectifying men. I was yeah. like, I was like, is this how they feel? This is terrible. Wow, that's such an interesting experience. I've never I like I'll notice like someone's attractive or whatever, but don't think anything else. So I'm like, oh, it's a good looking guy, whatever. And like next thing you know, I'm like staring, and I was like, ew. <laughs> Like, is this what they deal with? Wow, that kind of gives you empathy for it's almost not in their control in some ways. It was just, it was really, it was really funny. It was one of those like, huh? And I caught myself doing it where oh, I was yeah. almost just like, that's not my typical, right? That um, sounds kind of fun. It was <laughs> like, play with testosterone. Yeah. Um, once someone has experienced infidelity, I think the big question is, because we can talk about the whys and the whos and the whats and all of that stuff, and who knows? And this is what I kind of love about talking to people in the therapeutic communities is everyone's like, it depends. Yeah. Like, you know, like there's never any like prescriptive this, 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 this happens. Like it's mm -hmm. never those conversations, which I think is hilarious. And it's probably given me a lot more empathy for people, right? And kind of understanding like we're not we're not made in a factory, you know? And I think a lot of times, especially as, as girls and women, we're raised to believe that love is supposed to look like X and love seems to never look like X. Um, but once it happens, I think the big question is the conversation around trust because you hear constantly, like, you know, if you don't have trust, you don't have anything. And then, like, I've seen there's a lot of women out there who will actually talk, especially in the in kind of more of the Christian communities, talk about how they and their husbands went to church and worked through it, and they're back together. And everyone's like, you know, that's amazing, you guys. And then you have the doubters in the comments who are like, um, you know, he's going to do it again. Like, you know, that's BS. You know, you're, you're, he sucked you in. And, of course, there's going to be thought process on, you know, thoughts on either side. Yeah. But can trust be rebuilt 
And do you, do you see, especially in your practice, do people tend to want to try? Um, absolutely, trust can be rebuilt. It's hard and it's a long road and it's um, very emotional, but it can happen. And if people want to try or not, often I think depends on how far into the relationship they are and how invested they are in it. So I think very often when people are married, they're more willing to try to recover from it than if they're just dating. But even, I mean, that said, the vast majority of my practice is people who are not married, uh, couples who are not married, and they very often are coming in because of infidelity, either that happened early on in the relationship when it wasn't quite as serious yet. Mm -hmm. And they're realizing it's hard for them to get over and it's impacting their ability to move on to like the next step of getting married or it just happened and they've been together for a couple of years and they're living together and they want to figure it out. That's interesting to me. What What do you think the first steps, like from the moment that it's found out, like what's the chain of events? Yeah. So there's a lot of um, kind of psychological teaching on this. And the first thing that needs to happen is full disclosure. Um, The more, so very often the the betraying partner wants to continue to lie to either cover things up or soften the blow or just not have to deal with the fallout of their behavior. Don't do this. (laughs) If you're a betraying partner listening, every lie after the initial uncovering is another betrayal. And so instead of recovering from one huge betrayal, you're now recovering from a huge betrayal and then a bunch of other huge betrayals right after that on the heels of it. Um, So that's the first thing is full disclosure. That said, you shouldn't, um, the, the betrayed partner, you should be somewhat cognizant of what you're asking. Like you don't, want to know all the details about the sex and the like where it happened when it happened how it happened like a lot of that stuff is going to create images in your mind that you can't let go of Mm -hmm. um and as a betrayed partner you're very likely to experience symptoms that are fully aligned with ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder Um, which is typically what people have after coming back from war or recovering from an assault or like really, you know, big events, but the same feelings and the same symptoms come up after being betrayed by your partner, because it's like a complete shift in who you thought they were, Mm -hmm. who you thought you were as a couple, what you saw your life looking like, like there's the rug was just completely pulled out from under you. And that creates a whole roller coaster of emotions, flashbacks, trouble sleeping, nightmares, um, really volatile uh, anger and sadness, and just like unexpected popping up of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, all that's expected. The only reason it doesn't get diagnosed as PTSD is because there wasn't a life threatening event. Otherwise, it's truly almost identical. So that's the whole like first stage is dealing with the roller coaster of emotions that's going to come up, um, doing a full disclosure, but not in, in the sense of like what details are going to stick with you and create images in your head. And the betraying partner has to be really sensitive to all of this and know that this, you can't rush through this. They are going to need to know a timeline. They are going to need to know why this happened, how it happened, who it happened with, how many times it happened. 
you know, those are all valid things that you have to be patient with that disclosure and honest. And on, and I, I would assume too, it's probably very hard Well, for both parties, right? But for the person yes. who did the betraying, um, it's not something that is going to like, oh, in three months, we'll be good. No, I'm assuming no. <laughs> that there could be a period of time, like a year or two from now, where all of a sudden something happens or something is said and emotions come up again. Is there, I know this is a weird question to ask you, but is there like, is it appropriate for the person who did the betraying to be like, hey, it's been a long time, we should be, or should it, they expect okay. that this is part of the healing? This is part of the healing, yeah. I mean, part of what helps rebuild trust is the betraying partner being open to helping the betrayed partner heal at all times. Very powerful statement. That, yeah. I mean, just that sentence alone, because I think that we see so much like pop culture psychology, right? Where it's like, know yours, leave him, do this. And then, you know, all of these, the way you found him is the way he's going to leave. Like there's so much garbage out there mm -hmm. that we put into our heads and just that kind of the intimacy of, of rebuilding a relationship of trust where the betrayer is like, I need to help you heal from this terrible thing that I did to you. Right. Like that's a very kind of like guttural primal. We're trying to, to rebuild. I've had a couple of friends who have um, dealt with infidelity who talked to me about um, hysterical bonding. Do you know about mm, hysterical no, bonding? No, I haven't heard that term before. So it was where they immediately found out there was some disclosure, but they very quickly wanted to have sex with their partner. Oh, yes, yes. Is that what it's called? Is it called something different? Um, I, I didn't know there was a name for it, honestly, but that is really common, and it's it weirds people out when that happens to them. They're like, right. why on earth would I want to have sex with this person right now? Yeah. And it's if I'm not mistaken, it's because you're trying to like recreate that bond. It's almost like that primal, like I'm – marking my territory right now yeah yeah and sex can be such a connecting experience that when, even when you don't necessarily have words to connect because you're so hurt that maybe it's also just a soothing kind of connecting experience yeah I had a friend of mine he, he um has found out his wife was cheating and he's like I don't know why like I wanted her so bad right then and I was like that's weird but then I've heard it again where people are like, it just made me, like, I felt like I needed to, like, have sex with them right then. And and I've also heard on the other end of the spectrum that the the person who has done the betraying is kind of also weirded out by it because they're like, whoa. Um, but it seems to be kind of like almost like a, a guttural primal thing. Um, how, through the, the course of, of progress, for someone who has been betrayed, are there signs that they're healing? Are there signs that they're like, are they like, okay, this is going to be okay? Um, and what things do they need to ask of the, the person, of their partner in order to feel better? Aside from just disclosure, should they give them access to their, their data? Should, like what needs to happen in order for that person to start being like, okay, I'm hitting some milestones? Yeah, good question. So that first truth stage is kind of the first thing that needs to happen. The second is safety. And um, that is creating safety for the betrayed partner. So it might be um, safety and trust can kind of, so it goes truth, safety, trust, vulnerability, intimacy. That's kind of the ladder we walk up when we're um, healing from betrayal. And in the safety, it might be um, lots of check-ins about how you're feeling. It might be um, allowing a set time where you can ask questions because 
it's also not great to ask 8 billion questions in a sitting because you're both going to get overwhelmed and you're going to, it's hard to take in information once you get triggered. And obviously hearing this information is really triggering. This is why the betrayed partner will ask things over and over again that they've heard before. Mm-hmm. One, they're trying to verify is he or she or they telling the truth? Right. Or is the story changing? But yep. two, they may not have <laughs> taken in all the information because they were so triggered when it started to come up. So pace yourself with asking questions. That's part of creating safety is like also having boundaries around it. Um, but it might, it, it, safety looks different for every person. It might be holding me at the end of the night and reassuring me that you love me and you only want to be with me and you're going to do whatever it takes to work through this and you're so sorry. Um, when you kind of get into safety and, and moving into the trust, rebuilding trust, that's when we start talking about what do you need to be able to trust this person again? Mm-hmm. Do you need access to devices? That's very legitimate, by the way, to ask. I think sometimes people balk at that. Your partner lost their right to privacy. If they want to rebuild trust with you, they they have to give you access to whatever is needed for you to rebuild trust because their word is not good anymore. Right. Who you thought they were is not true anymore. So yes, it's totally valid to ask for access to phone, computer, whatever devices um, to do find my friends tracking so you can verify that they are where they say they are. You know, there's a lot of ways we can kind of check in on someone these days Mm -hmm. and whatever the couple thinks about that would be helpful is appropriate. Mm. I, it's so interesting because I, it's almost like, um, what you don't, in the beginning of a relationship, you don't want to look like the crazy person. So you're like, (laughs) you don't want to look through their stuff and you don't want to, you know, geolocate them or whatever. Like you're trying to be like, I'm cool. But then at this point, you're, you're, you're bond. And like you said, that kind of expectation that we had this relationship and now that relationship is not exactly. And I've heard in the past talking about, I think you and I talked about this. It's almost like there's the couple and then there's the relationship. Mm-hmm. So did that third party, did that relationship that happened prior to the, is that almost over? Is that yeah. almost done? Yeah, it is. The relationship as you knew it, where there was ultimate trust and safety, that it was just you two in this relationship is gone. And so basically you're building up an entirely new relationship, but it's a lot more primal. It's a lot more, and I, I keep using that word, but that's kind of, I almost feel like we become like cavemen when we're in these types of situations where it's like you're kind of stripping everything down to the roots and build it back up with me again. Make me understand mm-hmm. that I can trust you again. Um, let me see everything mm-hmm. so that I can so that I can heal. And do you find that as couples move along in that rebuilding trust phase, do you find good success rates? It varies. It really depends on um, a lot of factors, of course, <laughs> but the, <laughs> the betraying partner needs to be really patient and attuned to their betrayed partner um, and understand that it's a long process. It is going to take time. They are going to ask you the same things over and over again. They are going to want to talk about it a lot. They are going to have big emotions. So if the betrayed, no, sorry, the betraying partner doesn't have the tolerance for that or the correct expectations that this is normal and this is what's going to happen, then it can really not go great because mm. 
there's not a lot of safety for the betrayed partner. They're left with all these huge feelings, no way to express them or have them validated because they can't speak up to the betrayed, betraying partner. And it just ends up, you know, it's not a safe environment and it doesn't really help rebuild trust. So if they are, if they struggle in that regard, do you use, do you typically see, like, I would assume at that point, it's kind of, is this the life that you want to live, right? Like you're kind of asking yourself this question, like, is this the life I want to live where I can't trust my partner and I can't speak to them about the hurt that I feel inside. And so I'm assuming at that point, they're kind of weighing their options and trying to decide if it's, if it's worth salvaging. Is there like a, a typical timeline? Has there been any studies done on how long it takes to move from the incident, like the, 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 illumination (laughs) to to the day that you're like, we're in a good spot. I trust this person. I don't know if there has been any studies. I'm not aware of any, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. Um, So I don't know. I I would imagine it's really different because every betrayal is different too. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say you caught your partner texting inappropriately with someone that might be really different than finding out they've had a five-year affair with someone and have another child, you know? No, completely. I understand that. Why, um, having this solid foundation of trust, of course, is very important for building a relationship. Um, what is it about, I mean, I, I know, but like for our listener, like what is it about having this solid foundation of trust that is so beneficial for the couple long-term? Hmm. Gosh, I don't even know how to explain that really. I guess because your lives, it's just such a core thing that's that's known to be important for a relationship. So I was like, but why? I guess because your lives are so intertwined, you have to trust someone to keep you physically safe, to fiscally keep you safe, to um, care about your emotions. It, you're so vulnerable with somebody that you're in a relationship with because they have so many influences on your life and there's so many different things that are intertwined. So I can't imagine, I mean, unfortunately, so many children have to grow up in homes where they can't trust the adults in their lives to keep them safe in those instances. And those often are the people who end up in relationships where they can't trust their partner to take care of them in all those outlets of life. That's like, As a parent, it's like that, you know, you kind of hear that and you're like. I always wonder what my daughter is going to be in therapy for. (laughs) I'm like, I feel like I'm doing a really good job, but there's going to be something that you're in therapy for. Um, You mentioned the latter, um, trust, safety. Um, Can you go over those again? Because I missed the last couple. Yeah. So truth is the first one. We talked about revealing and disclosure, then creating safety. Um, then rebuilding trust, and then you can have some vulnerability and back to intimacy. And vulnerability is kind of letting your guard down a little bit, allowing your partner to, allowing yourself to feel things for your partner again that you may have been holding back, Um, allowing your, you probably still love them if you're trying to work it out, but you might be half-heartedly loving them or loving them angrily and and not necessarily vulnerably so it's just, it's almost like a emotional shift it's not necessarily a tangible thing um but you might start giving them a little more leeway and not checking in as much like that's really vulnerable as well 
And then intimacy can definitely be sexual, but also not sexual, just saying, I love you again and saying, I want to spend the rest of my life with you and things like that. Um, you may have been having sex the whole time still. Right. Very often the betrayed partner um, after that initial wanting to have sex may not want to. Yeah. They're kind of locked away a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to me about resentment and where that might show up because I feel like I think it's lovely and and I've heard across the board that there are a lot of couples for many reasons decide to stay together and, and work through it and get to a good place. But that doesn't necessarily, even though like maybe you have rebuilt a new relationship, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be moments where resentment shows up. And yeah. how do you, how do you observe it, manage it, move through it without it starting to become another part of like another being within your relationship? Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes you might need to share it with your partner and sometimes you might need to work through it on your own. Um, but more often, if you can share it, I think it's helpful and just have your partner hold space for you. The betraying partner needs to be really good about saying, I get it. I'm sorry. I wish this never happened. Like this makes sense that you feel resentful, mm -hmm. you know, just really soothing and creating safety. It's going to be there. There's, you know, and that you asked earlier about signs that the betrayed partner is getting better. And I think they'll start sleeping better. They, if they were having nightmares, those might reduce their flashbacks might reduce. They're more emotionally stable and they might notice resentment reducing. Mm. I think what I'm getting from all of this is like, it's so much about stripping down the relationship and creating, creating vulnerability, right? Even mm -hmm. from the very beginning, the person who did the betraying has to be vulnerable. They have to be willing to come to the table and take accountability and say, I did this. What do you need to know? And um, and I assume, I mean, it goes without saying, ending any relationships, creating changes, doing all of these things so that the person who's been betrayed can feel it. Oh, yeah. Um, None of this can happen without the, the ending of the relationship, for sure. Yeah. And like I've seen like you know Dear Abby columns or whatever where it's like he works with her and I'm like you better get a oh. new job. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you have to. Yeah, he's... and it's so hard when that's the case and the person can't get another job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah I can't imagine. Um, what can a couple do if they are um, if if one of the individuals because we see this a lot where like someone comes into the relationship and they already had infidelity in their past relationships mm -hmm. and they're almost and, and maybe it's not even about a couple maybe it's just about this individual and as they navigate going forward when you've experienced infidelity um i think i've heard a lot of all men cheat it's just what it is right, right. Mm -hmm. and you know of course that's not the case um but how do you work with someone or help someone to kind of unwind what's happened so that they can be open to new relationships without almost drawing in and creating the same type of dynamics they had before? Is it their picker? Is it because they had an unstable childhood where they couldn't trust their parents so they keep picking untrustworthy partners? Like what can they do so they can break that cycle? So you're definitely describing someone with some sort of attachment trauma usually it starts in family of origin, you know, in childhood, and then continues by who they're picking and who they're, what they're tolerating in relationship. Um, 
for me, my treatment of choice for that is attachment focused EMDR. It's just such a powerful way of treating, um, getting, understanding what are the memories from your past that are sticking with you and helped you create these beliefs that all men are cheaters or you people can't be trusted or whatever the core memory ends up being. Mm -hmm. You kind of figure out what those memories are that where that was imprinted on you as a child. And then you reprocess them using this um, process that EMDR uh, has. That's the, the rapid eye movement, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And you can do, you use bilateral stimulation, which is basically just stimulating your right brain, left brain, right brain, left brain alternatively. Mm-hmm. And you can do that by tapping on your right and left arm, alternating. You can do it by following a light with your eyes. You can do it by uh, walking even. Like a lot of times people who run process while they're running mm-hmm. um, and think through all their problems from the day. It's when we get in a traumatic experience, our brain stops pinging the information from the left to the right like it normally does in a normal event. And so the memories get kind of stuck in our in our body and in our unconscious mind and they don't get put away correctly. So EMDR kind of helps get the brain moving and pinging left, right, left, right as you're reprocessing the memory so that it can actually get put away without emotion and body memories and all the things that come along with a traumatic memory. It's so interesting to me because I think we look at these things like, oh, tapping, that's weird. What's that going to do? But so much of our what we deal with as human beings has to do with our neurobiology mm-hmm. and it's kind of restructuring that and putting it like you said I, I was thinking of like little file cabinets like putting it in the, yes. right, the right file cabinet right, right. so right. that it's not immediately coming up and you know one of the things that I've noticed um is that and and I'm not trying to say gender one is better than the other but a lot of women I know who've dealt with this they end up single for a while and work on themselves because they're like what and I will say that I have seen some men who have been known to not, you know, have uh, go through a lot of women, do whatever, have, have you know, sh- struggled in relationships. And at some point in time, ev- everyone looks at themselves and says, I am the common denominator. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Right. And, and at that point, kind of taking the time out. And I've only seen the women actually successfully do it. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever seen you like the guys might say like, like I'm, I'm the common denominator and this is just my circle yeah. but never actually like okay you went to therapy two times and now you're dating three girls like mm. I have so many lovely male clients who are doing the work and yay doing, yes they're out there I'm so glad I'm so glad um but I think it's I think it's really it's really important for someone to take the time and the space away from the relationships. And I also notice too that like sometimes when you're you're caught in a relationship, and I shouldn't say caught, but like if someone decides this isn't for me, it's not working, and they take the time away, it's almost like you find yourself again. Because whether or not you realize that you've become so interconnected with another individual that sometimes you're like, I forgot that I enjoy this. I forgot that I like to do this. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's great. Yeah, but it's giving you the opportunity to kind of to work on yourself. So um, I love that, the idea of like working on your neurobiology instead of going through like these deep trauma classes. And that's another thing, like 
I, when I w- was writing my book in 2018, it was very much about getting the stories out of us and trying to figure out like, what's your trauma? What's your story? What is it that you believe about yourself? I believe that I was unlovable. Mm. Oh my God. When that came up, I was like, that's huge. Right. And I had sought out relationships and sh- sought out work situations where I would be unlovable. Where I would be treated poorly and be able to be like, see, it keeps happening to me. And I didn't realize I was doing it. It wasn't a conscious decision. And so I I worked through that and was able to, of course, you've got you know new layers of things that come up over time. We're like, oh, I have this yeah. other issue, right? Um, but it was in doing that. But one of the things that I noticed with writing the book is a lot of women found their stories, which I loved. But then they talked about them and sat in them and they became their identity. And that's why like, I kind of shifted the focus of our podcast and what we're doing because I was like, can we heal ourselves without having to identify with and creating trauma bonds and conversations and, and support groups may be wonderful and say therapy may be wonderful, but there has to be a point in time where we get, can we get past it? And what I'm learning is there's so many different modalities that have to do with their neurobiology Mm-hmm. where we don't necessarily have to process it in such a painful and ugly way. Yeah, that's right. Like, especially if you're stuck in it, like insight sometimes is enough to realize, oh, I have this story. It's not true. Let me look at all these other situations where it hasn't been true. And that's enough to help you reprocess the core belief that you had. Yeah. Put it away and put it to bed and start functioning differently. But with attachment trauma, a lot of times there's so many little wounds throughout childhood where you were not attuned to and not made to feel lovable and not whatever the wound is, um, that it's just like deep in your body. Mm. And in those Mm -hmm. cases, if therapy isn't shifting your behavior, you probably need to do a more somatic type therapy like EMDR or somatic experiencing where it really addresses what is stored at the cellular level in your body, which is sometimes generational and not even yours. Yeah. No, I do believe in that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I mean, it's not even like a believe or don't believe. It's literally proven by research. That you just, you carry on the pains of the people before you. And is it because it becomes like subconscious throughout the lines as you're is it something biological or is it something that's more like a subconscious belief system that continues? Both. Um, there's genetic markers in our DNA that can get turned on or off based on experiences. Wow. So um, if you Google like rats, cherry blossom studies, you'll see um, the kind of pivotal study on this, but they had rats, um, male rats smell a cherry blossom smell while shocking them. They had them in electric cages and they shocked their feet and like sprayed this cherry blossom smell. And so they conditioned the rats to be really scared of the smell of cherry blossoms. Then they bred them and their generation, uh, for seven generations down, the their babies were afraid of the smell of cherry blossoms though they had never been shocked. I just got goosebumps, that's really mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Like I knew about epigenetics and like how your your body can can change the DNA of of who you carry and how they're going to show up, but I didn't yeah. realize like that it could go to that level. It does. So then you look at huge events like the Holocaust or um, other genocides or other wars, and you have a whole um, millions of people, right? Like generations of people who are carrying trauma from events like that. Mm. it's that's powerful 
It's very yeah. powerful. Yeah. I, and that sometimes needs to be reprocessed. And like that came up for me in an EMDR session once was something having to do with the Holocaust. And I was like, what? I'm Jewish, you know? And it was like, it was in there. I didn't know. So crazy. I, um, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of generational trauma in my, in my family. And, and what's really interesting is that I recently sat down with my mother and realized a lot of the things that I believed were not true, but there'd been a lot of, a lot of things that were passed down from the the women in our family that mm-hmm. probably have something, not exactly the same, but there's similar traumas and sexual abuse and things like that that yeah. have been kind of passed down. And it was really cool because I sat there with my daughter, who's 11, with my mom, and we had probably the most lucid, beautiful conversation we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, can we cut it off here? <laughs> like the fact that I've got, the, you know, her here admitting the things that have happened in the past and talking through multiple generations back of, you know, just terrible things that have happened and how she ended it, but she struggled and she didn't have the support that she needed. And right. I was angry with her for a long time, but then I realized, oh, she just needed help. She just needed the right support and therapy and, and medication. And having my daughter listen to that, I'm like looking at her with like, can this be the cutoff? Can this be the space? And she even said, it was the first time she met her grandmother. And she's like, I really love that I met my grandmother while she was apologizing to you and talking about what happened. And I was like, okay, I feel like maybe, maybe that could kind of rewire it from a very conscious level. But I never even thought about what could be coming through biologically. It's, it's incredible. But conversations like that can shift everything. Yeah. You know, it's, sometimes that's all that's needed is a conversation or a new insight or a new understanding about why something happened. Like it wasn't because you were unlovable. It was because your mom had trauma she hadn't dealt with and didn't have the resources. Right. It's yeah. incredible. It's incredible to me, especially, and this is one of the things I want to make sure our listeners understand is that we all do live in the gray, right? right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really fascinating that a lot of times what you believe, not only about your childhood, but about the person across from you and even yourself, maybe ask the question, is it true, right? Is mm-hmm. it is is what I'm thinking or believing or experiencing actually true? And, and you know, I... I look at the, like getting back to the idea of, or, or topic of infidelity, like I look at, at infidelity as, I think it depends on the person who's, who's doing the cheating, right? Mm-hmm. If it's, if it's a guy who has no empathy, who just does it for sport, that's, let's push him off to the side. I have no, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to see a lot of change there. Right. Yeah. It's just it, those people like to me, I'm just kind of like, all right, you know, like you're off to the side. Um, but I also have noticed that having some co- compassion and empathy for people who have had tough experiences in their life and seek out attention, not necessarily because they have big egos, but because they have hurting hearts So that's why, like, when, you know, like, I get frustrated because I do think that there are, it it depends. It depends when it comes to, you know, relationships. And, um, 
working with so many therapists and neuroscientists on this project has just made me realize like how beautifully messy we all are. <laughs> We're just flawed and lovely. Um, we are. And I think it's so important for um, anyone supporting a friend or a family member through infidelity not to pass judgment on why it happened or how it happened or any of that, or like what the person should, who was betrayed should do. Mm-hmm. Cause then you're adding more pressure to an already hard situation for them. They're now feeling pressure of what do I want to do and how am I ever going to recover from this? And they have this whole roller coaster of emotions, but then they also have people pressuring them and making them feel ashamed if they want to work it out. Yeah. And it's so easy when it's not your life to say, leave him, leave her there, you know, all the things that you've said earlier, but they don't have to live with the consequences of that decision. Yeah. You do. So I, what I found because I, I've experienced infidelity throughout the course of my life. And what I found is that the, the closest best friends were the ones that like bring you carbs mm. and are like, <laughs> how, how do you want to do this? Like, yeah, you know, I support you any which way, just make sure that you're okay. Right. And, um, I think it's, it's, to me, it's the grown up real life way of looking at things. I feel like when you're in your twenties and sometimes even in your, your early thirties before you've, there's marriage and kids, you tend to be like, "Eh, uh," you know, like I'm done. Um, which is beautiful. I've, I've done that before in my 20s. Um, what a luxury. What a luxury. But then when your lives are intertwined and you understand compassionately what's happening, it's a lot harder to just close the door, right? And the what I've noticed, especially moving into my 40s, is that most of the people that I know have dealt with something that nobody knows about in their relationships, and they're like, Girl, life is complicated. Love is complicated. Everything is confusing. These things are out there and available and they happen, but that doesn't mean that you throw away, you know, this entire life. And I think that there's just such an interesting, and I remember too, when my grandmother was passing away and a couple, like I was with her when she was passing away and she was like, none of that stuff matters. Like none of it, who do you love? Like, who do you take care of? Who do you care about? Like, those are the people that matter. And I just thought it was really interesting. Everything else seemed just like blips on a timeline. You know, like, ah, that sucked, but we got through it. You know, like, that was a terrible time, but it lasted two years. You know, that was, and it was just like such a way of looking at life from the vantage point of the deathbed and looking back and being like, yeah, sometimes things are hard, but you take care of the people that you love. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful to have that perspective. Yeah, it was really, it was very cool. Well, I love talking to you. Do you have any other advice for anyone who is listening to this podcast? Anything like that you were like, they need to know X? Oh, I would say one thing we didn't talk about is um, who to tell and who not to tell mm, about it. Yeah. there. I feel like when you've first been betrayed, some people want to tell everyone like he did this or she did that and Um, it helps to get validated and to feel empowered, but gosh, that can come back and bite you in the ass if you want to keep working through things. And then everybody knows what happened. Yep. Um, and also if you know, you have those friends that are going to pressure you to do what they think is right, 
they're going to add pressure to the already hard situation. So I think I would be pretty selective about who you share this with in the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, if you decide to break up and want to share it with more people, then great. But I would, you know, if you have a therapist or maybe get a therapist, because this is a really hard thing to go through, um, share it with them and like a select few other people in the beginning. Do you think that there should be like a cooling off period from the time that you learn to the time that you tell people or make decisions like because you know some people are like I'm throwing your stuff off the balcony (laughs) and then take them back like three days later right should there be like a like hey you found out this sucks you know maybe wait a minute before you make a decision um that probably would be a good idea I feel like most situations most decisions are reversible so um except telling people right then the cat's out of the bag um so I don't know if that's such a big deal if you throw their stuff off the balcony (laughs) and then take them back (laughs) they could just get new stuff (laughs) (laughs) they deserved it exactly they deserved it I love it and I again I think it's hilarious because like I my background is in finance and everything's so like x plus da 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 and whenever I talk to therapists that'll happen (laughs) like y'all seen some stuff you know (laughs) so you you come at it from a I feel like the therapists that I've been working with are like oracles like like you know in um the matrix like they're older and they're wiser and they've seen things but it's just hilarious because you guys have experienced so many things and I've like I'm realizing how much of life and I think I love this is fluid like I don't think that we have been trained or kind of educated to believe that life can be changed in any moment. I think we believe we're on a trajectory and it's very hard to get off. Mm-hmm. And, and what I've learned is like everything is so fluid. It really is. Yeah. yeah. So fascinating. Well, as always, how can people find you if they want to follow your stuff? Um, you can find me on everything couples learn. So coupleslearn.com. And then I'm, for social, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, well, I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Dr. Sarah Shevitz, and then I think that's it. Yeah, YouTube. I, I like your I like your LinkedIn. I mentioned that last time. I want to thank you for being with me today, and to our listeners, please follow Dr. Sarah and follow us on DearLive.app. Download the app on the Apple App Store. Thank you. <laughs>